Welcome to the Highway Church Podcast. We're excited for you to join us today. To find out more about us, visit highway.com.au. Thanks for coming out on a Saturday night, man. That's pretty awesome. Uh, yeah. What, 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 what better thing could you be doing, though, really? This is uh, getting in the Word of God and talking about things that really matter. There's no better endeavor uh, than having the opportunity to come and meet with God's people. So I am glad you're here. Just quickly, um, you know, this Highway Church, for those of you who might be visiting, or something, Highway Church is very special to Robin and me, Robin and my wife, uh, because uh, our, our journey through Australia really began here. And even though, you know, uh, I've mentioned before, Byron and I have a lot in common, very, very much. We, we love golf, and I've mentioned that before, we're avid golfers. Uh, we're both adored by our wives. They, they worship us, really. They just kind of <laughs> sit at our feet and just love us so much. Uh, but there is a trait that I haven't, that I don't know if I've mentioned before, and, it, and it's a great context here, is Byron and I are both uh, very loyal people. Now, some personalities are extremely loyal. I'm, I'm being serious now. We're, uh, you know, we're just, we're just very loyal. We're loyal to, to first friends and first experiences, and which is why we make incredible husbands, obviously. <laughs> we're very loyal. Uh, which is why when we uh, travel, if we find a restaurant we like, we stop trying other ones because we know it's good. Why, not, why, why risk a bad di- meal when you know if you go to this place, it's going to be good? You know, like when I go to Hong Kong, I always go to McDonald's. <laughs> it's bad, but at least I know it's going to be bad and no surprises. Uh, you could be eating something else that you don't want to be eating. But I say that because I know things are changing a little bit with us. I know we're traveling through Australia doing some stuff with Vision and uh, some other churches, but I need you to know something. Uh, our personality, our lo- this will always be our home. This is where we started, which means uh, one of our staff members always, like to use, always likes to, uh, to use the term, we are sons of the house. And so even though we travel around, this will be our home. We'll, the son always comes home. And so this is a very special place to us. And so when I'm here, it's not like I'm just a guest speaker. Uh, this is home. So we're going on a journey together. We've been talking about one life for a very long, long time. And so when I found out I had the opportunity to speak in, at Highway on a Saturday night, well, I'm going to continue what we've started probably six years ago. And that is because I believe this church has the hand of God on it, and because I believe that there's something so good that, that is happening now, and you go through these ups and downs, all churches do, uh, because I believe that God is doing something very special, and there's territory that you're going to take in the future, I want to continue to encourage you to understand that evangelism and winning the world for Christ is always going to be done best one-on-one. You can do productions and promotions, but until the people of God get serious about walking across the street or across the neighborhood or across the cubicle at work, until they get serious about that and understand the call on their life, the church cannot prosper without the individual. It needs the individual to understand the culture into which it's taking the gospel and to communicate in relevant terms the good news of the gospel. The message never changes, but your strategies have to adapt to current culture. And so if you don't do that, you can become irrelevant. You can become a holy huddle pushed over here against the side of this hill pretty quickly because you stop speaking in a language and in a way that people can understand. The good news of the gospel never changes. It's good, which, which is why 
that the first part of this message is going to give you a serious headache. Okay? You're going to have to really think about some things, but if you'll be patient and you'll say, man, I'm going to go with Pastor Jeff in this, then at the end, man, then it's, it just comes out and all of a sudden there's an excitement and your heart races and your pulse races. And you think, man, in the context of what we just learned, the gospel really is the hope of the world. The suicide rate in our world is higher than it's ever been in the West, in the West, and it's growing, and it's growing among 11 to 15-year-olds in the U.S., 11 to 15-year-olds. What possibly could happen in short 11 years that you're thinking about taking your own life? It's growing among women. It's highest than it's ever been in the West. I don't know exactly where Australia is in that, but I know in the West it is growing. People are taking their lives, and journalists from everywhere were asked to weigh in, and they wrote to places like Harvard and Oxford and uh, you know, USC, universities outside the U.S. as well, in the West, to try to find an answer about why people are taking their own lives. And the, nobody really wanted to weigh in. No one understands. No one can get it because their worldview doesn't include the supernatural. It's only a guy from Harvard that was willing to, to connect and say, basically, the reason we're killing ourselves is because the world is filled with hopelessness. So there is a chronic sense of hopelessness in the world, especially in the West, which makes no sense because we're healthier and wealthier and have a sense of liberty to travel than did our parents 50 years ago, and yet we're taking our own lives. So we have everything our parents were searching for, thinking it would bring us ultimate happiness, and what's happening is we're taking our own lives. Now the problem is that the message we have is a treasure for the world. It solves the problem. But the treasure, when you first deliver it, is offensive in the West. Now, the passage that I want to talk to you about is a passage which you're familiar. It's where Jesus says in John 14, I'm the way, truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Pretty straight passage, right? It means it's easy to understand. But when you present that to the world, it's offensive. It's offensive because of this. Used to, we would define the terms inclusivity and tolerance, and by the way, inclusivity and tolerance, they are the West's highest values, right? It's what they value above everything else, tolerance and inclusivity. You have to tolerate all worldviews, and you must, include, you must be inclusive. As soon as you say something that's exclusive, I mean, we've got political correctness now. There are things you can't say in public. There are jokes you can't tell anymore. You can't even, you can't even use sarcasm when sarcasm is meant to be humorous if it somehow separates you from some people group. So, in, so tolerance and inclusivity, highest values. Now, here's the problem. Those two terms used to be defined like this. Inclusivity, tolerance, meant that all people are created equally under the law and are to be treated equally under the law. You with me? Under the marketplace of ideas, the thought was you get everybody in a room and you talk about your ideas and your religious beliefs and your philosophy of life, and you may disagree, but all all people are to be treated equally, no matter what their culture, creed, religious statement. That is the original definition of tolerance, and it's a good one. You should not be discriminated against or persecuted because you hold a different religious belief from somebody else, right? We, we like that definition of tolerance and inclusivity. But it's changed over the last 25 to 30 years. Now, when we talk about tolerance and we talk about inclusivity, what we're talking about is not only are people to be treated equally, but now we're saying that all ideas have to be treated equally. 
So now we're saying that when you use the word tolerance, you're only tolerant if all ideas are equally valid or equally true. Now, how can that be? It's in that context that we Christ followers, if you really want to understand why the world detests us, and by the way, it does detest us in many ways, but you know how, you know how a guy buys, a, let's say he buys an ice cream and he opens the wrapper and it's gone sour. So now he thinks that every ice cream he has from this day forward is sour. So we have one bad experience with someone relating to the gospel. We automatically assume that everybody's like that. When the truth is, the latest Barna research says that 33% of Christ followers share their faith in a given year. 33%. Two-thirds do not. And yet 77% unchurched, 77% of unchurched people said they would be open to a spiritual conversation if someone began one. So one-third of all Christ followers are sharing their faith, while 77% of the people say, I'd be open to having a spiritual conversation. Why? Because somebody opened the package, and it was a raw deal, and now they think everybody's like this. So not everybody in the world's atheistic, okay? Not everybody in the world's anti. But one of the things that puts us on the back foot is that when we present the gospel, we do so, we do so by claiming that Jesus is the only way to God, and in an inclusive Tolerant culture, when you define tolerance and inclusive as all ideas are equally valid, that's just not going to cut it. And unfortunately, it's the Christian, by the way, that usually uh, is accused of being exclusive, as if we're the only ones. Why is it then do we take a gospel of exclusivity where we say there's only one way to God and it's through Jesus Christ? Why would we dare to take that message into a world when the world has changed its definition of tolerance and inclusivity? And here's the answer. It's twofold. Number one, because Jesus said he was the only way to God, and he rose from the dead to give us objective proof that probably he should be listened to. I mean, if you rise from the dead, I mean, you deserve to be heard. And so he rose from the dead, which is part of the creed of the early church, and he did so in history. So it's not a subjective fantasy it is an objective in history, Jesus rose from the dead. Now, because he rose from the dead, he deserves to be heard. And what he said is, I am the only way to the Father. You can't come to the Father except through me. Now, here's the second thing. And this is where, we, you know, we got to get good at this. I told you you're going to have a little headache, but we'll get better as the night goes on. And I'll give you aspirin the last 15 minutes. Uh, the problem with inclusivity is fivefold. Let me go through them with you quickly. And this is the hard part. Number one, when you define inclusivity as all ideas are equally valid and equally true, it violates the laws of logic and reason. It's called the law of non-contradiction. That's as old as Plato and Aristotle. And the law of non-contradiction goes like this. Two statements made about the same thing which diametrically oppose each other cannot both be true. Two statements made about the same thing that diametrically oppose each other cannot both be true. If I tell you my wife Robin is pregnant, and 15 minutes later I tell you my wife is not pregnant, both those statements, since they are diametrically opposed to one another, cannot both be true. So, when it comes to Christ and his message, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Okay? Okay? So I pre-existed Abraham. The Bible tells us that Jesus was actually part of the creation scenario. In John 1, 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing has been made that was made. So Jesus was helping the Father out in the moment of creation. The very name of God, the very name of God is plural, 
Elohim is plural because it includes God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God in three distinct persons. And we're told in Genesis that God spoke and said, let us make man in our own image. Well, who's us? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the fundamental message of Christianity is what? You're saved by grace through faith. You can't earn it. You can't be good enough to be accepted by God. It's a gift of God through the cross of Christ, which we'll talk about in a moment. Now, I don't mean by any, I mean, it's not my intention at all to sling mud at other religions. I have Muslim friends. I have Hindu friends. I have Buddhist friends. In fact, I'm reading a book that was given to me by a Hindu friend, a philosopher called Why I Am a Hindu, in order that I can better understand Hinduism. So I have these friends, and I just simply want to represent their beliefs accurately. So my Muslim friends will tell you Jesus is not the Son of God. It's impossible to have a son, for God to have a son. In fact, even claiming that is blasphemy. Jesus was a prophet and a teacher, equal to Muhammad, but not greater than. And that Jesus absolutely did not die for the sins of the world. In fact, Muslims are the only religious, they're the only uh, a group of people who deny the historical death of Jesus on a Roman cross. So, you say, why do you tell me that? Well, because both can't be right. Islam will tell you that you're not saved by grace. They won't say merit, but they'll say, if you ask, how is one saved? They will tell you by keeping the five pillars of Islam, by making a pilgrimage to Mecca, if you can, and by being a good person and accepting the will of Allah in all situations. Now, let's go back to what I said. Two statements made about the same thing that diametrically oppose each other can both not be true because they're mutually exclusive. If somebody says Jesus is the Son of God who died for the sins of the world, and this person says Jesus is not the Son of the God, and he did not die for the sins of the world, both those statements can't be true unless we're living in some kind of loony bin. So inclusivity fails the test of logic. Second, stay with me now. It's a little headache, but it's good for you. Second, inclusivity and tolerance works under a false assumption. It says that all the religions of the world are fundamentally similar and only superficially different. It says the, the major religions of the world are fundamentally the same, only superficially different. Now, Joe Klein, a journalist, says this. Anyone who believes that there are inferior religions is a right-wing extremist. Do we really want to say that religions that offer child sacrifices are not inferior? Do we really want to say there are not inferior religions? You say, well, no, I don't think that's his point, Pastor Jeff. He's talking about the five major religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. But if you think that those are fundamentally similar, it's because you've never studied them. And it's because you're not part of one of them. Because all of these religions are exclusive by nature, all of them. It's not just Christianity. It's every major world religion. Uh, let me give you just one example here. Uh, Gautama Buddha was born a Hindu, and he renounced the two fundamentals uh, of Hinduism, which was the Vedas, the Hindu scriptures, and uh, he did not agree with the caste system. So he began his own journey of a search of enlightenment, and then the uh, Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the extinguishing of desires in this nirvanic pursuit. The point is, Buddhism was born out of a rejection of Hinduism and the fundamental core values. Buddhism is exclusive. Hinduism is exclusive. Islam is exclusive. And the most exclusive faith system of all is atheism. 
Because atheism categorically denies the supernatural. So atheism excludes all religions except its own. And its own is a religion. Any statement or belief about the absolute is a religious statement. And you've heard me say this here before. Stay with me now. Don't, don't lose me yet. It's good for you. You've heard me say that atheism is a logical imposs impossibility because an atheist postulates an absolute negation. Atheists will tell you there absolutely is no God. And the only way you can know there's absolutely no God is if there, you had absolute knowledge. And you don't have absolute knowledge. Uh, a good way to describe that, ha, huh, there it is. Uh, great debate a couple of years ago. So you have, uh, you have a, Christian and, uh, a Christian philosopher and an atheistic philosopher debating. And it got to a point where finally the Christian philosopher said, look, how much of, let's say this circle represents the universe. How much of the universe do we really understand? How much does science really understand about the universe? And the atheist was honest. We do understand. We understand some things of the universe. I mean, when you think about the fact that there are millions of stars in this galaxy, and there are billions of galaxies, you start to think about that, that'll give you a headache. So he says, how much of the universe do we really understand? And the atheist said, I would say in your circle, maybe about this much. And the Christian, athe uh, the Christian philosopher came back with a great line. He said, then isn't it possible that God exists somewhere in here? If you only have an understanding of that much of the universe, don't you think it's possible that God's out here somewhere where you don't know? So when we talk about exclusivity, truth by nature is exclusive because it excludes that which disagrees with truth statements. Uh, the new atheists are aggressive. They want to exterminate all religion from planet Earth because they think if you can exterminate religion, you will have peace. Now, isn't that interesting? What happened to tolerance and inclusivity? Alastair McGrath says this, the 20th century gave rise to one of the greatest and most distressing paradoxes of human history, that the greatest intolerance and violence of that century were practiced by those who believed that religion caused intolerance and violence. Here's what we've learned. We learned that it's not Christianity or not religion that causes the most violence, even though after September 11th we all panicked. Atheism has created far more death and destruction than any religion ever thought about creating. Uh, Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot were all pragmatic atheists and millions and millions and millions died. So the point is, when you say that all religions are fundamentally similar and only superficially different, it's because either one, you don't understand what those religions teach, you don't understand their core values, or one, you just don't understand how all of this works. You don't understand the law of non-contradiction. Two statements made that diametrically oppose one another cannot both be true. And just because, by the way, two things have something in, uh, in common doesn't mean that they have everything in common. I have ears. An elephant has ears. That doesn't make me an elephant. There are differences. Now, Steve Turner says, he's an English journalist. Listen, notice what he says. And these are wise people. These are people you'd think who've graduated from Harvard and Oxford. You'd think they'd know better. You'd think they'd be a little bit more intelligent. He says, we believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the ones that we read were. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. <laughs> only those things. The third thing, quickly, and we're getting to the good stuff. You're doing so well. The third thing is that I've never really met a true inclusivist. It's kind of like Tinkerbell. I've heard about Tinkerbell, but I've never seen Tinkerbell. 
And I've heard about inclusivists, but I've never really met one. I had a next-door neighbor in New Zealand, and I shared my faith with him one evening. It took about three or four hours. He asked questions, and I shared my faith. Now, this is, now we're getting into the real world here. And you know what he said to me after that? He said, hey, Pastor Jeff, if that works for you, great. You hear what he's saying? By saying that, he's denying any form of absolute truth. He's just saying, hey, if that's what you have to believe to make you feel better, I'm happy for you. Now, I want you to think about what he's saying for a minute. What is the definition of insanity? If you look it up, the original definition of insanity, now it's changed a little bit because of mental illness, but originally the definition of insanity was the inability to tell the difference between truth and fantasy. So here's what my neighbor's saying to me. Pastor Jeff, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you're insane. I'm glad that you're building your life on fantasy. So I'm happy that you're insane, and that's made you happy. I wish I could join you. I would like to be insane and happy, but I just don't think I can get myself to do it. So I said to him, Phil, it's not about what makes me happy. Now, obviously, truth, if it's really truth, I think there's a pragmatic happiness to it. It's not about that. It's about what is real, what is an accurate reflection of reality. And when he said to me, hey, if that works for you, great. I said, well, what if, what if child sacrifice works for me? Is that okay? You know, what if robbing banks works for me? What if starting a cult and abusing little children? What if that works for me? Is that okay? I mean, Hitler was happy exterminating six million Jews. That made him happy. Mother Teresa was happy saving lives. That made her happy. So is it about what makes you happy that is true? You can be, I think some of the most happy people are insane. Because they don't know how bad the world really is. It's a loony world. I have never truly met an inclusivist. And when I said to Phil, Phil, it's impossible for all religions to be equal. He said, I disagree. I think all religions are equal. Equally valid, equally true. And I said, Jim Jones? Charles Manson? You know what he said? Well, everyone except those. I said, well, okay then. What religion are you? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you said, you said that you think all religions are equally valid, equally true, so what religion are you? He goes, well, I'm unaffiliated at the moment. And that's because you only say that if you're not affiliated with something where you understand its core values and fundamentals. And finally, and you've done so well, I'm so proud of you. Uh, inclusivists claim that the problem they have with us is they, we're, they think that we're arrogant, right? Who are you to say that you know the way to God? Okay, even though they're looking for hope, even though there's such a form of hopelessness in the world, they're so desperate. And so here's the example that has been given uh, for, for centuries now, literally centuries. And in 1950, there's a missionary who made it famous. Uh, a missionary in Africa was approached by someone and said, you know, Mr. Missionary, <laughs> I cannot remember his name and I'm sorry, but I'm getting older and sometimes I forget. Long story. Who are you? No. So... So the missionary was presenting the gospel. Someone comes up and says, you know, your problem is that you don't understand that all religions of the world are like three blind men who happen upon an elephant. One blind man comes forward and fills the trunk of the elephant and says, wow, elephants are long and flexible creatures. The second blind man comes up to the leg of the elephant and said, no, they're thick and round like tree trunk creatures. And the third blind man comes up to the side of the elephant and says, no, they're large and flat creatures. And then the objector says, religions are like three blind men that happen upon an elephant. 
All of them have part of the truth, but none of them have all of the truth. Now, what's wrong with this illustration? Does anybody know? The only way you would know that someone only had part of the truth is if you yourself had all of it. You're assuming something that you say no one has. This is not communicated better anywhere that I found than in Dr. Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. Here's what he says. Skeptics believe that any exclusive claims to a superior knowledge of spiritual reality cannot be true. But this objection is itself a religious belief. It assumes God is unknowable or that God is loving but not wrathful or that God is an impersonal force rather than a person who speaks in Scripture. In addition, their proponents believe they have a superior way to view things. They believe the world would be a better place if everyone dropped the traditional religion's views of God and truth and adopted theirs. Therefore, their view is also an exclusive claim about the nature of spiritual reality. If all such views are discouraged, this one should be as well. If it is not narrow to hold this view, then there is nothing inherently narrow about holding to traditional religious beliefs. What's he saying? As soon as you accuse us of being arrogant because we say that we have an understanding of spiritual reality, that makes you arrogant because you're saying your view of spiritual reality is better than our view of spiritual reality. Truth by nature is exclusive and it will always exclude false statements concerning what reflects reality the most. Finally, and then the good part comes, the, the fifth one's easy. Inclusivity or inclusivists claim that it is impossible to know anything with certainty. That's the problem they have. So you Christians think that you know and it's impossible to know anything with certainty. To which my response is, are you certain it's impossible to know anything with certainty? It's a loony bin world. Okay, the headache's gone. Now let's talk about what all this means. Do you know what you have that people want so desperately? Yeah, you have the only philosophical religious system. You have the only true statements about the nature of God, nature of man that truly gives someone hope that is rooted in objective reality in the resurrection. You, you have what they're looking for, desperately looking for. But anytime you have any worldview, every worldview has to answer the, the, the questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And it has to do so uh, coherently. It has to be consistent across the board. But even if that's true, it still has to be existentially felt. You have to feel the truth that you're claiming. And this is what Jesus and only Jesus offers you. Because one of the most beautiful things about giving your life to Christ is that because your sins have been forgiven, you are now clean so the Spirit of the living God can come on the inside and live in you. There's no other promise of that in any religion or philosophy where you become the household of God. Do you know what people are looking for? They're looking to connect with the ultimate spiritual reality and they don't know how. And we're, we've lost our ability to communicate to them because we're, we've lost our willingness to study where they're coming from. Now, I know that you know the message of the gospel. I've drawn this up here so many times, and I've shared it so many times, that every other religion tells you that if this is zero good and that's 100% good, every religious system tells you as long as you have more good than bad, you're going to go to heaven. But Jesus comes along and says, well, you got the wrong standard. God is the ultimate standard, and we're all sinners. Pastor Jeff is a sinner. 
Pastor Byron's a sinner. My whole team, they're sinners. You're all sinners. We're all doomed if we don't have the grace of God because none of us measure up 100%. But the human predicament knows this. The human heart knows there's something wrong, but they can't put their finger on it. And when you come along with the message of Jesus Christ and you tell them, do you know it's possible to be clean, not because of how good you are, but because what God did for you when Jesus died for your sins on the cross and proved that he did die for your sins by this objective historical reference in our past of the resurrection. There is a sense of beyond in people. Even though they tell you that there's nothing after death, they know down deep inside there's something after death. And they're trying to connect with it. And the Bible, the message of Jesus is that God is holy and pure and righteous. And because he is, you and I become the objects of separation. Because if you believed in God, would you not expect God to be holy? (laughs) I mean, if God struggles with sin, that's a problem. God is holy and righteous, and that nature requires him to separate himself from sin. But he's also loving, which motivates God to provide a way of forgiveness where we can come close. Do you know how brilliant the cross is in the mind of God? You say, well, I wanted him to do it another way. No, no, no. This is absolutely brilliant that God would give up what is most precious to him so he would not lose you. What communicates love to us? Come on, in the human experience... What is one of the deepest, most penetrating kinds of love? There's, there's four Greek words in the Bible. You've got eros, which is a, a, an erotic love between man and wife. You've got uh, phileo, which is a friendship love, the kind of love that Byron and I would have. You've got uh, agape, which you mostly know of, as unconditional love. But then you've got another love. It's called storge. And storge is the love between a father and a son, a mother and a daughter. And you tell me if that's just a little different than all the other loves. There are things you would do for your children you probably wouldn't do for your wife. It's an amazing thing. So in order for you to be convinced, if God is going to communicate the depth of his love to you in a language you can understand, it's absolutely brilliant. He gives you his own son. Now, this message means that you can existentially feel and experience the power of God in you. This changes everything. And just before I move on to those four, the, the four ways that it, that it impacts you, and they'll be quick, my purpose is not to, again, sling mud at Islam, Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, oh, in the sense, though, that I do not believe they accurately reflect what is real about the nature of the person, the workings of God, because they diametrically oppose the teachings of Jesus who proved that he was who he was by the historical fact of the resurrection. But that doesn't mean that we should dislike or separate ourselves from Hindus, Muslims, and Buddhists. We should find them and love them. Because do you know what's happening in the Islamic world right now? This is something the media will never tell you. That Muslims are coming to Jesus every day. There are thousands that have come to Jesus in the last seven years in Iran. Thousands. And you know the avenues through which they're coming? Three of them. Number one, they're starting to think, how can I harmonize all this violence in Islam with the love of God? I can't. Two, dreams. 
Jesus is revealing himself in places outside the West, it appears, in dreams. Because the Bible says, if you, do you think there aren't Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus not seeking God? You, you don't think there are some of those seeking God, really trying to find God, but are steeped in the tradition and religion of their ancestors? Everywhere we go, northern India, everywhere we go in the Islamic world. I just got back from Kazakhstan, I mean, and met people who knew Christ. Met one guy who stood out on the front porch of what was a makeshift church and told me, when I asked him, how'd you come to Jesus? He said, well, I had a dream. I've been searching for God, and I heard this name. I found a pastor, and he explained the gospel to me. People are coming to Jesus in the Islamic world, and here is why. Because they're looking for something that will enable them to connect with the divine nature, which the Bible tells us, when Jesus forgives us of our sins, we are partakers of the divine nature where we can connect with God and sense his presence in us. Now, how does that work itself out? Just quickly. Uh, by the way, uh, Sheikh Hussein, who's a leading uh, Islamic cleric in Damascus, Sheikh Hussein, leading Islamic cleric in Damascus, uh, in a conversation with a good friend of mine, and in the course of the conversation, this Christian apologist continued to talk about the message of Jesus. Now remember, Islam denies that Jesus rose from the dead. And after conversations in a large Islamic audience, after a lot of conversations, the Islamic cleric looked at him and said, You know, Professor, I think the time has come for we in the Islamic world to stop asking if Jesus died and to start asking why. There is a move of God right now. Now, you and I in the West think that the move of God is not as powerful as it is other places. You've heard me say this numerous times. You're not waiting on God. God's waiting on you. When you get serious about understanding the culture into which you're taking the gospel, and you get serious about praying that God would cause someone to come across your path that you could build a relationship with over time to present the gospel. And if you're patient, the time will come. How many, if, I don't want you to raise your hands, but I'll bet you, if I ask you how many of you are meeting regularly with somebody who's a non-Christian in order to talk about life and do life together, I'll bet you some of you are in little holy huddles where you don't even have any unchristian friends. That is not your calling why? Okay, quickly, and then I'll be finished. The most beautiful thing about Jesus coming into your life is that he cleans you up on the inside. The Spirit of God comes on the inside. And some of you, I'm going to say this, and you've heard it before from other people, but some of you have forgotten this. When the Holy Spirit comes into you, you're supposed to see things you've never seen, do things you've never done, feel things you've never felt. And the reason that many of you aren't is because you're so filled with disobedience that you've quenched the fire of the Spirit of God. You think you can live apart from His Word and at the same time experience the divine nature of God. You are saved by grace. Yes, you are. But you are sanctified. You are workers together with God. You do the right thing. You make the right call. You trust and obey. And that's when you see things you've never seen, that you'll do things you've never done, and you'll feel things that you've never felt. That is the message of the gospel. Only Jesus fulfills the deepest longings of the human heart. There is, a, there is a love that I have for my wife. I love my wife, but there's a love she cannot give me. There's a love she can't, there's a deeper, more penetrating love for which I've always been searching. 
There's a significance that I'm looking for that my family cannot give me, that the church cannot give me. There's a meaning that my family, that my wife, that my kids, that my church, they cannot give me. Only Jesus can give me what I'm ultimately looking for. And he does it when I call on his name and I'm a partaker of the divine nature. And suddenly I see things, I do things, I feel things, and I have that sense of satisfaction that I have meaning, that I have purpose, that I have significance, that I count. And once you have that, once you have that, you're not going to take your own life because you're going to know that God has called you for a purpose greater than yourself. Now, why does this matter? Quickly, i got to hurry because I've been talking too long already. Why does this matter? Think about just for a moment that, uh, go back to uh, Acts 7, Stephen Standing before heaven, right? He's, he's given his own life. He's a young man, probably in his 20s, great preacher. You know, he's going to set the world on fire with the gospel, and somehow he's going to face his death, and his life's going to be cut short. The Bible says in Acts 7 that he's, he's facing his martyrdom. He looks up into heaven, and he sees Jesus doing what? Standing at the right hand of the Father. I know of no other passage where Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father. He's always seated at the right hand of the Father because his work is complete. Why all of a sudden, this used to bother, why all of a sudden do we see Jesus standing? Because Stephen is seeing the throne room of God and Jesus is standing as Stephen's advocate. He's saying to God the Father, Watch over him. Protect him. And at the same time, he's saying, you can do it, Stephen. Stand your ground. I'm going to connect the dots. You don't know why this is happening, but it's going to happen for a purpose you can't even see. I'm going to bring you on up to heaven now, but here you go. Stand strong. Be used of God. Make your life count. The Bible wants us to know in Acts chapter 7 that there's somebody that you connect with when you're partakers of the divine nature that is what we call your, ultimately, your ultimate balcony person. The person that's looking over you and saying, come on, Jeff, you can do it. Resist the temptation. Come on, walk across the room. Come on, pursue holiness. Come on, pursue me. And you know why that's important? Because if you've lived life long enough, you know there are people in your life every day that take a hose and try to siphon the life right out of you. It's so important that you surround yourself with people who are going to be balcony people, who are going to be for you, who are going to help you, who are going to encourage you, because real life's not like that. And people know that, and they're looking for people that will encourage them, that will love them. They're looking for ultimate balcony people. And that's what the new community, the church, gives to people who are far from God, who come near. Then they've got an instant family. I mean, look, I'm an American. I talk funny, and yet you're my family. You're family, and we're so different, but we're family. People are looking to be partakers of the divine nature, and they're looking for people who will say, you can do it. Keep running the race. I'm here for you when you're depressed, when you're anxious. I'm on your side. I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to love you, and I'm going to help you. I'm going to restore you. The story of Stephen reminds us there's an ultimately, ultimate balcony person, and we're all looking for him. Two, quickly. Only Jesus gives a satisfactory answer to the most troubling question of our lives. This is where Jesus is unique again. I'll, I'll be quick here. Um, one of my favorite illustrations is Dr. John Polkinghorne, who taught quantum physics at Cambridge University. So he's not lacking in brain matter, brain power. And he, he says one day, you know, he was thinking, when you consider the relationship between the expansion and contraction of the universe in the early picoseconds, a picosecond 
is the time it takes something traveling the speed of light to cross a hair's breadth. So it's moving pretty fast. He says the expansion contraction rates in the early picoseconds of the universe had to be so precise, so precise, or this would be one chaotic universe, that the only explanation is God managing the early seconds and stages of created order. Now, that's a scientist telling you that. He says, but then I started thinking, if that's true, if God can bring beauty and pattern and design out of the chaos of the universe, how much more can he bring beauty and pattern and design out of the chaos of your life? Remember what I said last time I was here? You said, do you remember, Jeff, what you said? Yeah, yeah. We are people of the cross, which means it's possible to be in the worst possible situation of your life and be in the center of the will of God at the same time. See, I didn't grow up Pentecostal. I grew up Baptist. My friend Clive calls me a Babdecostical <laughs> because I, I love so much of what a church like this brings. Be careful. Make sure you understand that when you are in a difficult time of your life, that you don't automatically assume that it's because you've done something wrong or that God's abandoned you. It could be that he trusts you so much that he's willing to let you suffer a little bit to connect all the dots and use you for a purpose greater than yourself and for his glory. Be careful. And what people want to know is, is there a reason behind the pain and suffering in my life and in this world? And we're Christ followers. We come along and say, you know what? We're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but we're not going to walk alone. And we may never have that exhaustive understanding of why we suffer, but what we're promised is a prevailing presence, the Spirit of God in us to walk us through every step of the way. All right, quickly. Only Jesus... Two more things, we're done. Only Jesus gives objective proof of the future hope. So let's, let's kind of summarize and end together. So we're saying that tolerance and inclusivity just aren't going to cut it logically. It's just not going to cut it. Every philosophy, every religion is by nature exclusive. It excludes what is false. Christianity is no different. It has a true statement that is rooted in the objective reality of the resurrection. That's a huge point to make. Nobody else came back from the dead. Nobody else atoned for your sins. And you're partakers of a divine nature, which means that you can experience God. You can see things, do things, feel things other people can't see, do, or feel. And if you're not seeing and doing and feeling things you never had before, or somehow that stopped, it's because somewhere along the line you've short-circuited God's willingness to be an enabler, to enable you to keep living the life you're living, and at the same time reward you with a full experience of Him. It doesn't work like that. So if it stopped, He's trying to get your attention, knock it off. That's why the Bible talks about quenching the fire of the Holy Spirit, grieving the Holy Spirit. But then Jesus gives a satisfactory explanation for the pain and suffering of our lives, that it's possible that we could be in the worst possible position of our lives and be in the center of the will of God. People want hope. People want to know that their lives matter, that their pain matters, that their suffering matters. And third, only Jesus gives us that objective proof of the resurrection. Only Jesus gives us objective proof of not his resurrection. I'm talking about yours. Well, people want to know that there's something next. Everybody assumes it. Everybody knows down deep inside that they are more. Look, look at yourself just for a moment. You're more than your body, aren't you? See, I'm 55 now. I avoid mirrors at all costs. Now, when I was younger, man, I, I stopped at every one. 
And then one day you looked in the mirror, right? You looked in the mirror and you were like, man, is that really me? What happened? And so as I get older, there's a real desire to be changed, to be transformed, to be new. But I can't believe in something that's in fairyland. I've got to have something that I can, I can know that is rooted in history. And so when a lady called in a radio program one time and said, you know, Pastor Jeff, I, I want to believe, but you have no proof whatsoever of, of, of a resurrection, that we rise from the dead or that we live a new life. And that's true to a degree other than the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 uses a, an example from environmental sciences, doesn't he? He says, you want to know how I know? He says, you, can you explain to me how it is that a little tiny apple seed goes into the ground, dies, decomposes, and then springs forth into a beautiful apple tree? Paul uses that argument. Why would he use that argument? Because even though we know the seed dies, decomposes, and then brings life, we don't know how it happens. We know that it happens, but environmental scientists really have no idea how this, what's the the point where everything changes and life begins? Well, Paul says, that's you. And the life you have after is far more glorious than the life you had before. Now, that makes me happy. So that means the body I'm going to get is far more glorious than the body I have. Now, some of you 20-year-olds, you, you don't, that doesn't bother you that much. But for us, everything's going south fast. <laughs> and we'd like to go north. Now, because of that, here, here, this is where this is. No other religious systems, no other philosophy offers you this, folks. That means, as we said before, you can live with a vacation attitude. What's a vacation attitude? If you know that I'm, what is, this is Saturday, all right? Let, let's say you're at a work week. Let's say it's Wednesday in the middle of your work week. But you know Friday's your last day and Monday you're going to your favorite vacation spot. You're going to go up to Noosa Heads. You're going to go to Miami Beach. Or you're going to go to L.A. or you, wherever it is you go. Now tell me something. That week before you go on vacation, what's your attitude like? Isn't it amazing how much you can endure isn't it amazing somebody says something to you, usually you'll fire back. You, you, here's what you do. You say to yourself, dude, say what you want, because on Monday I'm out of here. <laughs> Gone. And the Bible tells us we can live our entire lives here with a vacation attitude to know, hey, world, throw what you got at me, because I'm on my way to heaven. Now remember what heaven is. Now stay with me. I know, I know you've been so good. This is where we miss the boat. Every other religious system has this weirded out view of what happens next. I mean, you got 72 virgins. You got some kind of eerie, fiery uh, clouds and angels with wings. Listen, this is something we don't talk about enough. What is the Bible's description of what is to happen next? What is it? Is it, is it that God's going to come here and take us all away to some fairyland? Do you know the Scriptures well? You know... The closest analogy I know is Robin Hood. King Richard is away fighting for the safety and freedom of his people. He's away from the kingdom. While he's away, Prince John, uh, Richard's brother, takes control of the throne, usurps authority. He's brutal. He's mean. He abuses the people. He taxes them. He, he, he slays the peasants. He's, just, he's a horrible, horrible man. But there's this small band of loyal people that go out and they kind of live as outlaws. And they keep preaching the message to the others, hey, stay the course, stay faithful, because one day King Richard's going to come back and he's going to restore his kingdom. Now, when King Richard comes back, 
Is this how the story of Robin Hood goes? Hey, I'm back. Now let's all get out of this horrible place and let's go over here to fairyland. No. What does he say? In the Robin Hood story, he comes back and takes what is rightfully his. You've got to understand what heaven is. Romans 8, the creation cries out to be restored to its original order. There is a new heaven and a new earth. You've got kainos and neos. This is the word not for brand new, but this is the word for renewed. So what's going to happen is heaven, you're sitting on it. Restored, renewed, and this, is, this planet belongs to Jesus. He is the king. He's away. There's an evil prince, an evil ruler that's abusing the people and culture. But one day he's going to come back and he's going to put a big ribbon around planet earth that said close for renovations. We're all going to be caught up in the air to meet him. And then when the renovations are done, boom. No other faith system gives you that. It's all weird, man. It's crazy stuff. This is the kingdom of God. And this is what Christ has promised. That's why you like the ocean and the beach, because it's a little down deposit of what he's going to really give you. That's why the Spirit is in you, but you only got, you've only got a deposit of what's going to happen. That's why I always like to dream about heaven. You know, what is heaven? Oh, man, I can swim in the ocean. I don't have to come up for air. I'm time travel. Maybe I can just say, Mars, boom, I'm there. I, I mean, that's meandering. I know I'm crossing a line there. It's just fun to think about. But what I do know with certainty is according to Romans and the way the Bible talks about heaven, it's not some eerie, fairy place over there. It's the restored kingdom of God right here where the ruler takes his throne. It's going to be better than you and I could ever imagine. We won't make holes in one every golf game, Byron, because that would not be fun. I mean, you'd still try, but when you fail, you wouldn't, it wouldn't matter as much because in the bigger scheme of things, you know you get to play golf till the day you don't die. And finally, finally, as people look for this hope and this future and what heaven's going to be and the reality of this connecting with the divine nature of God, ultimately, I think what every individual truly wants to know is, is there not only hope for what will one day be, but is there any hope now? Is there hope now? Right now. I mean, do I have to wait for all the hope then, or can I have hope now? Oh, man. The Bible is great here because the Bible keeps telling you time and time again that he's got a purpose for your life, that he's, that he's, he's got great intentions for you, that he wants to do something special with you, that your life matters so much, that he's going to use you, that he's going to work everything out together for good. And the temptation of life, stay, this is the end, the real end, okay? The real temptation of your life. Do you know what it is, right? This is the ultimate temptation for the Christian. Please hear me on this, and I'll, I'll finish with the last illustration. Is that you start living for God, and you make the right decisions, but your life doesn't turn out the way you had hoped. So suddenly, here's what you do. I tried it God's way. It didn't work. I'm going to try it my way now. The Bible says, trust and obey. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Because when you start trying, you're, see, what, you, what the problem is, when everything fell apart, even when you did the right thing, you, you, you don't know all the dots around. You have no idea what God is doing all around you in this scenario. So if you think you're smart and you say, I'm going to try this way because that way didn't work, you're not loyal to God. You're loyal to you. 
And all along, you were just using God for your purposes. And if God doesn't work out, if you live by his way, you're going to live by your way. That's not trust and obey. That's disobey and run. And that's why the Bible says, for he who endures will receive the crown of life. Even when it doesn't turn out right, you still follow, trust, and obey. And that is the only hope for the world when the Christ follower is consistent in the way that they live, even in the midst of great difficulty. And that's why my friend, Dr. Ravi Zacharias, I'll close with this, says he was meeting with uh, the, uh, basically the founder of Hamas in Damascus. He was invited as one of 18 leaders to spend time with the founder of Hamas. And every individual was able to ask one question, but they could, there was no rebuttal. So you ask your question, waiting for the answer from Sheikh Dalal. Sheikh Dalal would answer your question, but you couldn't say, but what about this? You just got to ask the question, but there was no rebuttal. And Ravi said, you know, it came around to me, and I asked him about suicide bombers, that, that uh, Sheikh Dalal was, a, was pro-suicide bombers. He, thought, he thinks that's a, a, a good way to advance your cause. And Ravi, Ravi said, I did not like his answer, but I didn't get a chance for a rebuttal. But then God did something remarkable. God put me on the stairs, walking out of the building, right beside Sheikh Dalal, founder of Hamas. And Ravi said, God, the Spirit of God, because he sees things he's never seen, feels things he's never felt, is able to do things he's never done, just gave me a word. And I said to Sheikh Dalal, I said, Sheikh, do you mind if I ask you something? And Sheikh said, no, no problem, Dr. Zechariah. And Ravi said, you know, not too far from where we're meeting, over on that mountain, Abraham took his son up to the top of the mountain. We say it's uh, Isaac, you say it's Ishmael. It doesn't matter for the point of the conversation. Either way, Abraham took his son up. And do you remember what happened as Abraham took the knife in his hand and started to bring it down? And Sheikh, Sheikh uh, Dalal, who's a, a Muslim, a radical Muslim but a Muslim, said, yeah, I know. Uh, the angel of the Lord stopped the knife. And Ravi said, yeah, and do you know what the voice said? Yeah, God will provide the lamb. Wow. Ravi said, Sheikh, another mountain just over the way from that mountain is a mountain called Mount Golgotha. And this time, there was a knife coming down, and, and the angel of the Lord did not stop the knife, and God gave us his own son. And he said, Sheikh, until you and I receive the son that God has given, we will keep slaughtering our sons and daughters on the battlefields of this world for money and power. And Sheikh Dalal began to weep and took Ravi's head in his hands and kissed him on both sides of the cheek and said, both sides of the face and said, you're a good man, Dr. Zacharias. I hope we meet again. We have hope for this world. Oh, man, we're the only ones who have hope. I know that's exclusive, but nobody else gives you the partaker of the divine nature. Nobody else gives you a purpose and the meaning, a real purpose and the meaning of suffering pain. Nobody else tells you there is a hope for the future that's rooted in the objective reality of the resurrection. And nobody tells you that the Spirit of God will give you the right word at the right time and the right place to help somebody who's far from God come near. Please, for the sake of the Gold Coast, please, Invest in a person who's far from God. Please, you have the message of life.
Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness and for the way that you speak to us through, uh, through visions, through dreams, through the word of God that corresponds with objective realities. And I pray that our hearts would be encouraged and strengthened and we would remember the hope that we have in Christ in his name. Amen.